Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's innovative hidden screen folds away when closed, keeping it clean while bringing in a ton more sun. Choose 0% financing for 72 months or a free upgrade to the hidden screen on our 250 series. Visit PellaWI.com today. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. We will continue to monitor the weather for you. Uh, Melissa Barkley. Uh, we're watching like a big blob of green <laughs> and some yellow. It, it looks like... You know, I Paul Joseph, I always tell this story, he used to be the, the chief weather guy at Channel mm-hmm. 4 when I started a long time ago. Paul would always send over nasty notes whenever I did what I was about <laughs> uh, about to do what I'm doing now, which you are not a trained meteorologist. Do not interpret the radar. But okay, but you can, you, we all look at There's the radar a, a now. There's a big and, green, yellow uh, blob, blob coming yeah. our way. It's, yeah. it's no red right now, very little red mm-hmm. on it. And that, that's good. But it looks to me, as I risk interpreting the radar from what we're looking at, that it appears to be moving northeast and it looks like while our entire listing area is going to get hit with stuff, it looks to me like to the north is where the the bigger the bigger blobs are, like the bigger blobs, Fond du Lac yeah. and yeah. stuff like That's that. That's what it looks like at this point. I know being around Brian Goddard so much, um, he would say like the temperature because it's so warm, it's going to be getting really warm too. That kind of leads into um, more right. storms and stuff. Some so. more later on, but yeah. stuff moving through, and we will continue to keep you updated. For and sure. again, so um, watch the skies and listen to WTMJ. We'll continue to keep you updated. Hey, we're also going to keep you updated. Another, uh, it's deja vu all over again, another brutal day in the stock market. Uh, the stock market, which has just been cratering over the course of the last couple months. Um, today, it, it's down sev- right now, down 714 points. That's after a drop of over 850 points on Friday, coupled with another huge drop earlier in the week. Um, since Joe Biden took over in January of 2021, the Dow Jones is now down about 1,200 points. The NASDAQ down percentage-wise more than that. And um, all this is about inflation. I mean, people, uh, uh, the markets, the people that buy stocks are very, very much afraid that in order to control inflation, the Federal Reserve is going to start uh, gr- dramatically increasing interest rates, that is, increasing the cost of, of borrowing. And the problem is you, you increase the cost of interest rates, you deter people from borrowing and therefore putting money into the economy. But if you do too much of that, what happens is you drive the country into a recession. And it's a very, very, it's a very, very tricky thing. We have not seen inflation like this for, gosh, probably going on 40 years or so. So we'll continue to keep you updated about that. The Dow Jones down again big. There, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I'm going to figure out a way to do this. There were two stories that I, I wanted to tweet out, but the only places I've seen them in one case, the Wall Street Journal, in the other case, the Washington Post, and they're both beyond paywalls. So if I tweet out the stories, yeah, I can link to them, but you can't see them unless you subscribe. The first has to do with Joe Biden and this proposal that he ra- you know, rolled out on Thursday with much fanfare. I mean, Joe Biden is trying to get us out of our cars. Joe Biden is trying to do everything he can, I think, to force people to stop driving automobiles and switch over to electric vehicles and things of the like, which is all well and good, except 
we are not even close to being prepared to transition from uh, internal combustion engines to, to electric vehicles. And there's all sorts of problems with it. You know, one of the problems is the cost. Second problem is the environmental impact of producing the batteries and all these things. Third impact is the, the scope of the electrical grid. We just, I mean, in, in many states, they're talking about rolling blackouts during the summer because we can't produce enough electricity to deal with what we have now. Imagine if all of a sudden everybody was driving an electric vehicle instead of a, a gasoline-powered vehicle. Imagine what that would do to the infrastructure that we don't have. And then part of the problem, too, is is the charging, the, the duration, how far you could go on a single charge of a battery, and how long it takes to recharge the battery, and where the battery charging stations are. And my point is, it's just... It's not going to be practical until you have batteries that can go 450 or 500 miles on a charge and also until those charging stations are, if not as convenient as gas stations, almost as convenient as gas stations. So recognizing this, on Thursday, the Biden administration waves its magic wand and says, here's the deal. In the next eight years, we are going to have half a million public charging stations and we are going to wave our magic wand and we are going to pass a rule that says these charging stations must be located every 50 miles along the interstate and no more than a mile off the highway. So the idea would be, you know, you can always, as long as you plan ahead, as long as you're driving on a federal highway, you will never be more than 50 miles away from a charging station. Stations would be required to maintain a minimum number and a type of chargers, and um, stations would be prohibited from requiring drivers to have a man to have um, a membership in them, and. In order to get federal highway dollars, the states have to have it. So everybody's like plotting. And I, I remember thinking, there's a lot of problems with, with this. It, it sounds real good that we're just going to wave, wave our magic wand and the states are going to be supposed to do this. Well, one of the biggest problems, and again, maybe, maybe this comes from somebody who's spent their entire life on either the East Coast or, or maybe even the West Coast, but certainly the East Coast, where everything is close together. All right, every 50 miles uh, of interstate, all right, charging station within a mile of the road. Well, here's the deal. And there's a big story about this in the Wall Street Journal today. In many states, particularly in the West, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, that you get the idea that that whole kind of mountain West area. All right. But what these states are saying is, excuse me, Mr. President, don't you realize that we have we have stretches of federal highway where we don't have exits every 50 miles. I mean, there, you know, there, there's just nothing out here. This isn't like, you know, going from Washington, D.C. to New York City. This is, you know, we're talking about Wyoming, where there's not that many people there, and there's miles and miles and miles between towns. So there's lots of huge stretches of the interstate where you, you don't you don't even have highway exits you know, within 50 miles of each other. And if you do have highway exits, 
there's no ele- there's no p- significant electrical infrastructure that exists that you're going to be able to put in a bank of, of charging stations. Now, again, maybe at some point in time, you will get to that point where this will end up being practical, but we're not even close there. So when you hear this pie-in-the-sky stuff, well, within the next eight years, we're going to have half a million of these charging stations, and there's going to be one every 50 miles, so you don't have to worry about it. Nobody asks How is this going to actually happen? And how is this going to work? And is this realistic? And the reality is, okay, maybe again on the East Coast, maybe you can do this where, where you've got towns and you've got everything that's close together. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could, if you take billions of dollars, you could, you could make something like this happen. But there's this huge vast area of of flyover country, you know, between the two coasts. And this just isn't practical in the real world. But, of course, that never stops some of these politicians from rolling out this idea. When we come back, do you want to see Donald Trump behind bars? I'll explain. We'll discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For reasons I set forth, I, I for people who are wondering what what is this January 6th committee uh, about, and, and I think... There's two things. First of all, for the Democrats on the committee, it is an effort, I think, to try to distract people from all the other bad stuff that is going on in the world. Secondly, it is an effort to lay out a roadmap to try to encourage Merrick Garland, who is the attorney general of the United States, to indict Donald Trump for... Something, um, you know, conspiracy to commit fraud. I don't I don't know exactly. And that's why you have the evidence that I, I think is pretty much uncontroverted that Donald Trump, despite being told by lots and lots of you know really smart, respected people that he'd lost the election and these claims that he was making to the general public were, were wrong, were lies, whatever words you want to use, he continued to do them. Now, I, I don't know that that's a, a crime. Um, I, I don't. And I, I understand that you had all sorts of people that acted out on January 6th, and many of whom are being prosecuted for the stuff that they did. So far, there's no smoking gun that says that Donald Trump called in, sat at a meeting of the Proud Boys, uh, whatever, and said, OK, here's what the plan is. We're going to storm the Capitol at two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, it's true that after these people stormed the Capitol, Trump kind of stood by and watched it. But... That it that's it's tough to turn that into a crime. And don't get me wrong, Donald Trump, in my opinion, did not cover himself with glory in any way, shape, or form in the way he handled his election loss. Yes, he lost, and also um, the, his behavior on January sixth. But it, what what do you gain by bringing an indictment? Is there a crime that was actually committed? And what does it say in the future if you try to criminalize this? If you have another president that takes a particular position and urges you know people to press on, it, is that a crime as opposed to just hey th- this person deserves to be thrown out of office? All right, let's start with Ed in Wauwatosa. Ed, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. Under normal circumstances, with a normal politician, you would slap him on the wrist and you'd go about your business, and we, we all want to move along. But he's already shown that he will not listen to that kind of thing. He's indicted twice for, um, my God, impeached twice. Right, impeached twice. And, and he can't move along. He cannot learn from his past mistakes. In fact, And you talked about the fact he didn't incite the riot. He did not do that. 
but he went to extreme lengths to support those states that brought fake electors, secondary suites of electors that were completely illegal. And if you let him get away with this, it just enables him or empowers some subsequent knucklehead to do the wrong thing as well. Okay, so let's say you indict. Let's play this out. You I, and I will, I will tell you this, for people who think that this would be a slam dunk prosecution, most, most, most people, most people that follow criminal law and stuff don't believe that. That this would be, this would be a very, very difficult prosecution to prove beyond a, a reasonable doubt, uh, that a crime was committed, as opposed to this was just really, really bad behavior. So let's, let's say you, you indict the former president. We, we have a trial that lasts over the course of the next year or whatever, and at the end of that, he is, he is acquitted. Doesn't that do more to I- enable some other knucklehead moving forward than if you just condemn him and then move on? It hasn't worked so far. You better at least try. Well, I, well, I, that's, I guess that's my point. No, thanks. For, I mean, you're, you're right. It, it hasn't. I has it. It hasn't worked so far. And I guess that that was the argument for impeachment. And I remember back when that second impeachment was taking place after he'd been removed for office. And, and I made the, the same argument back then. It's what what is the, what is the purpose? What are we trying to accomplish here? Because he, he's, he's not in office anymore. I mean, I understand the first impeachment, if you think that there's a basis to remove him from office, all right, that's fine. But but after he's from office, what is the, the point of this? Now, I understand that there's some people who are not going to be happy at all until Donald Trump is frog-marched out from Mar-a-Lago in handcuffs. I think the chances of that happening are incredibly remote. I think the if that happens, you turn him into a martyr. And as a conservative, my perspective is I, I just I want the former president to kind of go away. I, that's I, I just I, I I don't think that there's any realistic chance that you're going to see him in handcuffs. But at the same time, the, the I mean, the nightmare scenario for the Republican Party is that he runs again, and for the Democratic Party that that Biden runs again. I mean, what what a mess that that would be in twenty twenty four. But this idea that okay, we're going to charge the former president with crimes based on the fact that he he said a bunch of stuff and some people got incited because of it. That's that's I hate the phrase slippery slope, but that's a really slippery slope to go down. Let's talk to Andrea. Andrea, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. So I just, uh, you know, said to the gentleman who answered, my husband and I have been talking about this a lot. We have an almost 15-year-old, so he's very interested in what's happening. And my husband is a recovering Republican, and I just kind of skirt both sides of the aisle. But what we've been telling our son is, we really feel like this is going to be an Al Capone tax evasion thing. All of Trump's sycophantic supporters and people that were in his administration, they're going to be the ones, unfortunately, who listen to this bozo and will get taken down, do jail time, indictments, all of that. And Trump is going to end up getting barely a slap on the wrist, and then he'll get taken out for something completely unrelated. I, I just... It is a slippery slope. We need to continue to have the peaceful transfer of power. I did not vote for Trump. I am no fan of the current administration either. I'm disappointed in what's happening, but I'm also a smart woman, 
and understand certain things, and, and that is that we as a country rely on the peaceful transition of power. Mm-hmm. We can have opinions. We can disagree. We cannot incite riots. Those people had no right to do what they did on January 6th, and uh, unfortunately, it's the, the mob, the mobilization of the group that is going to be the people who... Right, the, yeah, the people who the people who stormed in, right, and, and maybe look if the committee is able to come up with evidence of Donald Trump meeting with these people or saying, look, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to storm in the Capitol. I want you to kidnap Mike Pence, etc. I don't. I'm. I'm. I am almost positive that you're not going to see that kind of smoking gun, to use the phrase from the Watergate no, thing. No, you're not, not. going to find it. Yeah, we're not. right. And and again, when it's I when I say you like, got to. Be careful with slippery slopes. It, it's sort of like you, yeah. you know, it would be wrong if you, if for example, someone were to say, "Gee, um, we have problems with the Kenosha Police Department." You know, people need to come to Kenosha and stand up, and then to say that the person and, and stand up and, and show how upset we are, and then to say to that person who said that, "Okay, because some people firebombed uh, a store, you are responsible for that firebombing." That that's where the slippery yeah. slope comes in. Yeah, exactly. If there's a right to peaceful protest, and I may not have agreed with those folks on January 6th marching at the Capitol, but you know what? We are Americans, and it, we are allowed to express peacefully our opinions. But we have to also look at precedents of law. Is it legal to shout fire in a crowded theater and bar the doors? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, we inter- I mean, thanks, that's I'm, my question. Well, yeah, Andrea, and I think, I mean, that's... I, again, I think that's going to be the question. Is is that by by whipping up his support? See, now, if I'm defending Donald Trump, and I, I'm really, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable in this position. As I've said before, I, I think I, I think Trump needs to go away. And, and that whenever I say that, I get a handful. One of my favorite ones today is, "You suck as a talk show host. Time to leave." You know, but so people, I understand that there's some people who do not want to hear that. But okay. That that's too bad. You know, you can stick your fingers in your and, and you can pretend uh, that, that it's otherwise. But Donald Trump is a very, very divisive figure. And I, I don't want to argue whether Trump as a president did a better job than Joe Biden. That's not the point. The point is what happened in the aftermath of the election and what happened on January 6th. And, and that's what you have to look at. And I guess the question becomes, yes, he he ignored advice. He ignored reality. He tried to come up with every cockamamie scheme he possibly could and one lawsuit after another, but does that rise to the level of criminal intent? Now, one of our texters says, well, what, what about his phone call to the Georgia, Georgia Secretary of State where he says, you know, we, I, I need you to help me find 13,000 votes. Okay, well, if I'm the defense attorney, I'm saying, well, okay, where, where's the criminal intent to that? What he was saying is he believed that there were all these irregularities and, you know, he, he believed that there were more than 13,000 votes that were for him. And if you followed the law, I mean, that's what that's what the argument I would make is. Keep in mind, if you're bringing criminal charges, you have to be able to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And then think about the other larger issue that's out there. What does it do to the country if you indict a former president? And I understand nobody's above the law, but there is a huge segment of the country that does not believe that Donald Trump did anything wrong. And if you have a criminal prosecution that, in my opinion, would be a flyer, 
That is, it's not like it's a dead certain winner at all. It's a flyer that maybe has a 20% chance of succeeding. What what does it do for the country that over the course of then the next year, we're going to occupy ourselves with this? Now, is it a distraction? Yes. Does it fire up people on both sides? Yeah. Does it do anything to make the lives of most Americans better? My answer to that would be no. Let's talk to uh, Dave in Janesville. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Oh, actually, it's Danny in Janesville. Oh, Danny in Janesville. Hi, Danny. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Um uh, yeah, I actually agree with you 100% uh, for a change. Uh, yeah, I, the problem that I see with all of it is it just seems to be that ever since he was elected, there are a ton of people, whether they be Democrats or even, you know, Republicans, they just want to see him go, want to see him fall in any way possible. All of this is doing is keeping him relevant, keeping him in the news. It's giving him exactly what he wants. You know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, the only people who say that, though, are people who've never had bad publicity. (laughs) But yeah, okay, I I understand, right? This he's getting attention from this, right? It's, I get. He's obviously, you know, obviously back, you know, when he was president, and even now, you know, he's in a deep state of denial. Anybody that doesn't agree with him, he fires him. I mean, look what he's done, you know, with half of his cabinet. You know, all you're doing by doing this is just keeping him in the news, keeping him relevant, and like you said. If they go ahead and go forward with all this, he could end up being a martyr, which gives him even more power. You know, it's just well, right, and, and that's his. No, you're right. See, and that's and thanks, thanks for calling, Danny. In some respects, that 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 plays into this sort of argument. Now, somebody just asked me if he were indicted, would that stop him from announcing his candidacy in 2024? And the answer is no. Um, if if you were convicted of a crime, you would not be able to serve. But there, there's. There was nothing. Matter of fact, I think if there was an indictment, that probably might even embolden him more to to run for for office. And, you know, then we're you know, we're we're just kind of off to the races. Now, look, I get like I say, I understand there's some of you that just believe Donald Trump is the Antichrist and you will not be happy until he's put in handcuffs and sent off to a gulag somewhere. All right. I, I just I think it is extremely unlikely in the real world that that's. That is, in fact, going to happen. And I understand that there's some people who just don't understand why other people want to see Donald Trump viewed as the Antichrist and walked off and sent to a a gulag. And then I think there's a vast majority of America who recognizes that this effort to hold on to the election was a huge character flaw that it manifested itself in stuff that was completely and totally unacceptable on January 6th. And the people who did what they did on January 6th deserve to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And then we all need to move on. I love the passions this generates all over the map. Jeff. You were irresponsible on Thursday when you said it was a dog and pony show. That undermines the house, fuels deep division in this country. Well, okay, Earth to Texter, I I don't think me saying that uh, that was a dog and pony show fuels the deep divisions in this country. Trust me, they are already there. And, of course, my argument is truth is an absolute defense. Look, these hearings are a dog and pony show, and they're they're staged. Okay, this isn't like an investigative hearing. They've already had the investigations. They are rolling this out in a way to support their narrative. Now, the narrative 
might actually be accurate. But this is a dog and pony show with, you know, bringing in producers to decide how we're going to do the timing of this. It is designed to inflame anti-Trump sentiment. It is designed to encourage the Department of Justice, as we've been discussing, to indict him. And I believe it's also intended to distract from some of the failures of the Biden administration. And this the headline is going to be January 6th, not that the stock market's, um, you know, in the dumper uh, again today or inflation is 8.6 percent or whatever it is. It's it's all those different things, which doesn't mean that it's not a, a valid exercise of what happened. My point has always been we're really not plowing significant new ground here. I, I if you read a lot of the books that have come out after the Trump administration, the, the stuff that they're talking about, that these are not exactly, oh, my gosh, you know, it, Bill Barr, he, he told him that the this had no merit. Well, that's what Bill Barr has been saying for the better part of the last, you know, two years. He told him the election claims had no merit. So I, I just this is one of those things where just like the impeachments which turned out to be sound and fury that signified you know, nothing in the words of Shakespeare. I, I think that, you know, a lot of this is it's 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 a distraction. It is divisive. Nobody covers themselves with glory. Nobody involved in anything that happened on January 6th is covered with glory at all. But at some point in time, you know, the country's got to move on. And if you think indicting the former president will make you happier or will make it easier for the country to move on, well, that, that's fine. Go with God. But then the question is, I, I think there's a very, very good chance that if he were indicted, at least based on what's been presented publicly thus far, there, there's not much chance that he's going to be convicted. So just like, oh, we need the impeachments because that's going to make him go, ah, didn't. And, you know, you do an indictment, you make the former president a martyr, and then we're dealing with all this stuff for the next couple years. And is that really in the interest of anybody, Republican, Democrat, independent, or is it in the interest of the country in general? Asking those questions. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Did anybody get the license plate on that bus? Well, if you haven't been following the story, it it, it broke on on Friday and was sort of an interesting thing. I I sent out a tweet about it, and you can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 on on Twitter. But it's one of these things where... for for everybody that gets frustrated with election years, oh, my God, it's another election year. We've got to listen to all these election ads and things. There are values to it because in an election year, people, particularly politicians, do what they might not otherwise do, but they do it because they're in tight reelection campaigns and even though their instinct says this isn't what I do, they're going to go ahead and do it because they want the issue to go away. Bring in Tony Evers and cue the music. All right, Tony Evers a couple years ago uh, appointed during the Scott Walker administration, paroles were few and far between. Now, most people sentenced uh, nowadays, they're not eligible for parole because we have truth in sentencing. But there are there are, are still a relatively decent number of people who are sitting in Wisconsin prisons for very, very serious offenses who are eligible for parole. Tony Evers made the decision to appoint as the head of his uh, parole commission uh, a guy named John Tate from Racine. He's actually the president of the Racine City Council, who is... I think it would be fair to say 
you could lump him in with this sort of progressive prosecutor movement. He's not a prosecutor, but th- this idea that we need to come up with alternatives to holding people accountable, and, and we, we don't want people to stay in jail for one day longer than they think. And as a result of that, I, I will tell you, Tate has caused a lot of trauma because you have a number of you have a number of very, very bad actors who are in prison, and um, their chances of getting parole, that is, released into the community, have increased dramatically because John Tate was in charge of the Parole Commission because he took a look at, uh, oh, what, what, what the heck, let's figure out ways to, to turn people loose. Well... He was about ready to do that in the case of a guy named Douglas Balzowicz. You might remember this. Balzowicz was, was 54 years old, and Tate's parole commission, Tony Evers' parole commission, had decided to grant him parole. Now, what had gotten him thrown in the Huskow in the first place? He murdered his estranged wife at her West Dallas home by stabbing her more than 40 times. And this is only in 1997, so it's 25 years ago, in the presence of the couple's two young children. The judge at the time, at the time it was Circuit Judge Diane Sykes. She has gone on. She was a justice on the state Supreme Court. She's now on the United States Court of Appeals for the second for the Seventh Circuit. Um, judge Sykes sentenced Balzowitz to 80 years in prison and said, look, I can't control this, but this is my message to future parole commissions. This guy should never be released. Well, he comes up, he's eligible for parole, and John Tate wants to turn him loose after serving less than 25 years. Well, this becomes a huge cause celeb. The the surviving family members of the victim, they, they go public. And they refused to just be steamrollered. And they were, and I, I've, I've told this story. I, I have friends who, who's, in, in one case, who, whose son was the victim of, of a brutal murder. And they live in fear that one of the people that was responsible for the murder of their son is going to be paroled. And under this current parole commission, there's clearly some people who want to let these folks out. And it's just, I mean, it is like rubbing salt into the the wounds that the surviving family members of victims have. So this became a huge political issue. Evers, recognizing that he was getting beaten up on this badly, Evers intervened, and I swear, I, there's no way Evers would have intervened, in my, at least in my opinion, were this not for an election year. And he desperately wanted this issue to go away, so he calls up Tate and says, I, I don't want you to do this. And so they rescind the parole, all right? So the, the, the murderer, the guy who stabbed, and it's just always amazing, because trust me, you know, it takes an incredible amount of rage. It's hard enough to kill somebody with a knife. He stabbed this woman 40 times in front of their kids. That, that The degree of rage you would need to do that is almost unbelievable. But anyhow, Evers, recognizing that this is a real political liability, calls him up and says, I want you to back off on this. So, he, he, you know, he, he does. Well, that doesn't necessarily make the issue go away because there's all sorts of people who are now starting to come up for parole or have been paroled, all of whom are a political liability to the governor who doesn't exactly have a tough-on-crime reputation in a year where crime is going to be first and foremost in a lot of people's minds. So, on Friday... Um, and what, what had happened after this is even though the parole had been rescinded, you know, 
the family of the victim's family said, we, we want this guy gone because the fear was, okay, you know, okay, so they, they've rescinded the parole now. There's nothing that says six months from now they can't reconsider it. So, okay, the election's over. Evers wins re-election. And, and now you've got another four years here. Let's try to quietly parole this guy again. So the family is like, look, you've got to get rid of this John Tate. And that was, of course, a drumbeat that was picked up by a number of the Republican candidates. So in, in sort of a Friday afternoon kind of purge, Tony Evers apparently sends a letter to his handpicked guy on the parole commission and says, you're, you're gone. I, I need you to, I, I want you out. And at that point in time, Tate then says, okay, Governor, I'll, you don't want me, I'll, I'll step down. And he ends up resigning at the request of Evers. So, look, let, let's understand what happened. Evers threw this guy, his own handpicked choice, under the bus The reason he threw him under the bus was he recognized that this was a political liability in an election year. I don't think he necessarily disagreed with the decisions that John Tate was making, other than the fact that it was causing him political heartache, and he wanted he wanted this to go away. So Evers can now say, okay, well, I fired the guy. This issue has has gone away. We don't have to worry about these paroles anymore. Let's move on to talking about something else. So no question in my mind that Evers threw his handpicked parole chief under the bus, but he, he did it because it was, in fact, an election year. So for everybody who says, well, I hate these election years, doubling back to where I was at the beginning, this in this case, I, I think at least for the time being, at least for the next few months, you're, you know, you're, you're not going to have crazy paroles that are being issued. Now, what's going to happen if Tony Evers stays in office, you know, what's going to happen after November? I, I can't make that prediction. But at least for the time being, the, the release of convicted murderers after serving only 25 of the years of their sentence isn't going to happen because, again, we recognize the political realities here. So was Evers' decision politically motivated? Of course it was. Of course it was. He wants the issue to go away. Will it work? Well, time will tell on that. But if it wasn't an election year... My prediction is this murderer will be walking the streets today. All right. As I told you at the start of the program, each day this week, I have a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest to give away. Summerfest starts in in just a couple weeks. I'm going to be broadcasting almost every weekday that Summerfest operates. Uh, I think the first day I'm not there because there's a Brewers game. But I encourage you to come down and see me to make it easier for you to do that. I have a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest to give away. Let's give them to caller number 9. Caller number 9 at 855-616-1620. Caller 9 wins a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest 2022. So, very glad to have you with us. We have a winner, but continue to listen because, like I say, I've got a four-pack of tickets to Summerfest to give away every day this week. We'll give it away sometime, give the tickets away every day between um, noon and 3. Uh, keep in mind, Summerfest is different this year. Well, you know, last year, remember, they scheduled Summerfest in September because 
of COVID. They weren't able to do it in June. The year before that, it was completely put off. This year, it's back, but it's a different format, sort of. Instead of starting on a Thursday and running through the following Sunday with Monday off, you know, a continuous, like, 11 days of the festival, this year, it's over three weekends. Summerfest is nine days. It's the 23rd. I think the 23rd is a Thursday. It's whatever that Thursday is. Um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for three weeks in a row. And, you know, they, they've explained why they're doing that. I mean, we've had Don Smiley on on multiple occasions, and he's been very, very candid about it. They, um, Summerfest is all about trying to enhance the experience, bring in the national bands, and also that they need to make money for their sponsors. And the early week, early in the week days tended to be the less attended days. And I understand some people like that, but that's, you know, if you're in a business of putting on a, a festival that's going to draw people and, you know, make money for the vendors and things like that and generate revenue to pay for the bands, you, you've got to be mindful of the fact that, hey, maybe we can have an enhanced experience, get better bands and draw more attention if we do it nine days, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And if we try to do it 11 days and built in there, we have a Sunday and we have a Monday. So, I mean, time will tell whether this is ultimately the successful strategy. But again, this year from summer for Summerfest, it's three consecutive weekends, Thursday through Saturday. And like I say, I will be broadcasting each weekday, except I think the, the first one of this. All right. One of our thoughts, I was just commenting on Tony Evers throwing his handpicked parole chief under under the bus. And somebody says, well, I, end result, Evers has done the right thing. That's the end of the story. And I said, well, no, it's it's not really because what was the motivation that Tony Evers had for firing the parole chief? Was it because I disagree with the guy's philosophy that I put in place? Or was it, I'm getting a lot of heat, this is an election year issue, so I want to make the issue go away? If it's really Tony Evers has had a change, and oh my gosh, the the skies have opened up, and I realize this philosophy of turning dangerous people loose on parole is a bad idea. It's one thing, but more likely is I just want the issue to go away. I don't want to get beaten up in 30-second ads for, you know, this issue. So, sorry, I'm going to get rid of the parole chief. The question becomes then, what happens after November whatever when the election is? If Tony Evers is reelected, you know, then, you know, do you to go back same old, same old and worry about it four years down the road? So that's why it's not necessarily the end of the story. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Who could have seen this coming? Oh, wait, everybody saw this coming. You may remember 2018, huge controversy involving Starbucks. And Starbucks is, of course, one of these very, very progressive companies that, you know, we, we want to encourage the baristas to write social justice messages on the cups and, and things like that. You will remember the controversy uh, out of Philadelphia in a Starbucks. And what, what happened is there were a couple of black men who were in the Starbucks one asked to use the restroom, was told by a manager that the restroom was only for paying customers. And then, you know, the 
they um, it, it just kind of escalated from there. Uh, according to the Starbucks employee, the people said that they were they were going to sit at the table, but they were refusing to make a purchase. You know, their story was so they were just waiting for somebody else, but they didn't tell that to barista. Bottom line is this becomes a huge national story because when they refuse to leave, the Starbucks employees call the police. So at that point in time, the chief executive for Starbucks swoops in and says, OK, here here's here is the deal. We are going to change our philosophy at Starbucks. We want Starbucks to be the, the open place. We want this to be, you know, your third space. Your space, you've got home and you've got work. We want, you know, Starbucks to be the place where you can just come and you can hang out. And you don't have to feel pressured to buy anything. And if you want to buy, use our bathrooms. That's great. Anybody just kind of walk in. And I think a number of us at the time said, huh wonder how this is going to work out and the answer is not well here is the story howard schultz chief executive of starbucks said all right here's the deal we are considering closing our restrooms to the general public reserving our bathrooms for our customers here's what he says we serve a hundred million people at starbucks there is an issue of just safety in our stores in terms of people coming in who use our stores as a public bathroom. We have to harden our stores and provide safety for our people. I don't know if we can keep our bathrooms open. So what they're essentially saying is just by opening the doors and letting anybody wander in and use the bathrooms and hang out and sit there and just turn this into their own private living room, what they're doing is you've got a lot of the employees who are complaining and you've got a lot of the other customers who are complaining. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, what's going on with Starbucks here? Is this is this sort of hypocritical? I mean, uh, Three or four years ago, they were going to be the the nation's third space. They wanted to invite people in. You want to hang out all day? We don't want you to feel pressured to buy something. You want to use our bathrooms? That's fine. And now they are rescinding this policy. To me, this was a policy that was doomed to fail. I don't fault them for doing it. This, to me, reflects the reality that businesses... Well, you know, you, you've got to have some control over who is coming in and how, who is coming out of, out of your business, or else what happens is it does provide, potentially, not in all situations, but it does provide, you know, difficult situations for customers and for staff. I don't fault Starbucks for doing this, and if they do close their bathrooms to other than paying customers, I think that makes a lot of sense. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss. If you're just tuning in, 2018, you'll remember the story involving Starbucks. They they had an incident where you had two black men who were inside the Starbucks in Philadelphia. Um, one asked to use the bathroom. The person said the behind the counter said no we're sorry it's just for people who are our customers and then the people refused to leave and it got complicated and this became this national story about racism and things of the like and starbucks swooped in and said okay here's what we're going to do our our stores are now open to anyone you don't have to be a customer you can come in you can sit down you can hang out you can use our bathrooms and i remember at the time saying huh wonder how this is going to work out well 
it's working out about as everybody expected it is. They're, they're now saying that they're seriously considering changing this because they are concerned about safety of their employees, safety of other customers. And, and what they're finding is by just opening up the stores to anyone, particularly in these urban areas, and it's the, the um, CEO of Starbucks says, you know, there's a lot of mentally ill people out there, and it's causing problems. Gee, what a surprise. 855-616-1620. Lamar, who is calling us from Orlando. Hi, Lamar. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So really quickly, I wanted to say that I, I hated the way this entire story unfolded to begin with because, you know, I, I'm African-American. I hate that as, you know, if it's just a, a policy that, that we don't like or somebody just being rude, it's automatically the, the default is racism, which is not always the case, which doesn't help anything, but that's neither here nor there. Um, this is standard policy with most stores in, like, dense areas. If mm-hmm. you've been, well, you've been to New York. Sure. This is how it is in New York. You know, you can't. The bathrooms are for just for customers because it, it reduces the bathroom traffic um, and it, you know, leaves that privilege there for the paying customers. Right. If you're downtown, any other city, that's typically how it works. If you're not a customer, they don't let you in because, again, you know, uh, it brings in a lot of people, you know, using the bathroom. It brings in a lot of unnecessary traffic. You know, it's just it's just bad for business. Well, right, and, so and, and in a Starbucks, yeah, works. and Lamar, like in a Starbucks store in particular, it wasn't just using the bathrooms, but they would say, okay, well, you, you can come sit at the tables and stuff. Well, okay, if you've got, if it's in the middle of winter and you've got a bunch of homeless people, no knock on homeless people, but homeless people that are sitting at the different tables and using the bathrooms and not buying stuff, then there's no place for the paying customers to go. So you've you've got that whole issue as well. Right, and then and it's and there's a McDonald's there in Milwaukee. Uh, the one, the ones downtown have always had that policy for the same reason. The one on North Avenue uh, and like right there off of I uh, I forty three. Right, same thing. If you're not a paying customer, you know you can't be coming to the lobby and kind of loitering because it creates problems. Loitering creates problems, and so this is just common sense. And whenever you swing too far one way. You know, you're always forced to swing back to what I call the common sense standpoint. Yeah, no, thanks. No, I think, I guess that's how I saw it. I did, this struck me as being doomed to fail from the beginning. Now, I guess, I, you know, it, this probably isn't a problem at, at every Starbucks. There's lots of Starbucks that are are. Destinate, or first of all, might not be in densely packed urban areas, or or there are destinations. You know, you have to you have to drive your car to them, or they're in areas where there, there's not a huge homeless population, or or whatever, where this isn't going to be a concern. But the problem from Starbucks' perspective, and I understand this, is you, you you've got to have a policy that's pretty much across the board. You can't, for example, say, okay, the Starbucks on Wisconsin Avenue isn't going to allow people to do this, but the Starbucks in Fox Point, that that will. And because then, of course, then it's, well, what what's the difference? And, well, the problem is you, you've got different issues. You don't, my guess is you have more people wandering in during the, the winter. But I, to, to me, this is a policy that, that makes sense. I mean, look, if there's an emergency situation, you can always go on a case-by-case basis. But I get the idea that, you know, th- these are places of business and the facil- the tables the facilities, the restroom facilities, they're for people who are patronizing the, the business. Let's talk to Jack. Jack, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. It's wokeness meets reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the... Uh, <laughs> going to happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. and this was perfectly predictable. Behaves, 
content. If everybody behaved properly, we wouldn't have issues. But some, as I tell people, yep, some some parents' children don't know how to behave at all. Well, and and in fairness, I mean, th- thanks for calling. In, in fairness, you know, we as we've talked about, and thanks for the call, Jack. As we've talked about in different contexts. You, you have a huge problem with homelessness. You have a huge problem with, with mental illness that, that's out there. And that's specifically what he was alluding to. You had, uh, apparently, there's all these reports that are out there, or else Starbucks wouldn't do this, about people who are, you know, mentally ill, who are coming in in some of these urban areas and are kind of camping out in Starbucks and are using the facilities. And you've got a number of the employees who feel threatened about this. You've got a number of the patrons who feel threatened about this. And I guess, again, you're exactly right. It's it's wokeness meet reality. And to me, it's a private business. Look, Starbucks... Starbucks is under no obligation to close off its facilities um, to to people who aren't patrons. At the same time, though, I, I think you know I, I'm not I'm not going to fault Starbucks for this. Again, this was one of these ideas to me that sounded really clever and sounded really progressive and sounded really good, and you got all this applause, and you knew you just knew it it wasn't going to work out. Let's talk to Bob in Milwaukee. Bob, you're on WTMJ. How are you doing, Joe? Hi, Bob. What do you think? I I see all the Starbucks throughout the whole state of Wisconsin firsthand. I'm not going to say where I work, but I do service work for them. Okay. Okay. I've I've experienced people sleeping in the stores with their shoes off. I mean, it's I'm doing drug walking in in the bathroom using drugs, and they have to. I'm on their side to close everything down like that. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so I mean, you go into a lot of Starbucks, and and you've seen this that you know you'll you'll have people that are essentially just camped out for the day, taking up taking up space where somebody else you know who wants that table they can't use the table. Exactly, I'm parked outside of Starbucks right now talking <laughs> to you. I mean, that's I mean, I work in Starbucks every day of the week. Different yeah. Ones. yeah. So do and you? It's, are, it's out of hand. Yeah, see, and that's that's the thing. And, and some people will look at them and say, oh, it's this evil corporation. But, well, no, they, first and foremost, their obligation is to their employees and to their customers. And th- this idea that you're going to take this private business and now we want to be woke, we want to be politically correct, so we're going to open it up and invite everybody in, that, that all sounds great. But in reality, especially, I'm guessing, some of these busier areas, it just doesn't work. Exactly. And then the thing is where people are paying customers are coming in there, they come in there and sit there, a lot of, you know, college students I see studying, you know, doing stuff in there, and they're being basically harassed by some of these people, oh, you know, well, panhandled. Well, that, oh, thanks. Well, that, that would be, yeah. No, thanks for call. That, that's, I mean, that's the, the other thing that, that's there. There's, there is, there is nothing, in my opinion, that, that kills a business area more than panhandling in general, but but particularly aggressive panhandling. I mean, if I'm if I, I don't I don't patronize Starbucks not not because of anything, just because I mean it's, I've been to Starbucks from time to time, but the idea of spending like four bucks for a cup of coffee just I, I'm I'm sorry I, I'm I'm old fashioned I'm old school still can't get over that. Now I have met people to have a cup of coffee you know and talk about stuff, but I'm I'm not that guy that goes there every day just to get the the Starbucks and the the three or four dollar you know cup of coffee. But I mean, if I were a regular patron of Starbucks and I was one of those people that sits there and I'm I'm sitting there talking with my friend or whatever, 
and you've got people coming up and panhandling you, you know, asking you for money, much less aggressively panhandling you, that that's that kills the business as well. And if you're talking about you walk into the bathroom and there's there's some needles on the floor or whatever, man, I'm telling you, that's the point where you go, huh, I, I think maybe we'll find another place to patronize. John on the north side. John, good afternoon. John. John, John, John. Okay. Oh, Hi, John. John's, John's here. John's here. Hey, John, Jeff, good afternoon. I'm here, Jeff. Go ahead. I can. Okay. Okay, my thing is this here. Um, when going to Starbucks, drinking that $9 coffee, I have went there several times. Okay, so now i got to use the bathroom. Um, uh, I, but I don't want to buy anything. You know, I mean, I patronize with them. Uh, it's just like all these gas stations, the same thing. Everybody's bathroom is out of order. <laughs> but when you go down in the front of the Board of Sony, this stuff has to work. You, uh, you can't say uh, the public can't use a bathroom. you got to have a public bathroom uh, to get your license. But they say, well, you can't use it. Don't fault me for some, what someone else is, is doing, you know. That ain't fair to me. You know, you got bus drivers having problems saying yeah. you can't go and use a bathroom, but they drink coffee all the time. They just don't want no coffee right now. But they have drank, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of coffee. So they, I don't know how you're going to do that, but it's wrong. Well, would you would you agree with me, though, that the, the, the flip side is a problem, too? You know, people who just decide that they're not going to buy coffee, that, that this is just their place to hang out. Hey, it's cold outside, so from 9 in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to go, I'm going to hang out in the Starbucks, I'm going to use the bathroom, I'm going to, you know, uh, panhandle some of the other people who are there. I mean, the business has a right to, yeah. to deal with that, don't they? Well, right, they have a right to deal with it, but this is what they ought to do. They ought to have some kind of uh, stamp that they can give people that, that shops there all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that stamp, you can't stay there but, but five minutes. You, you got five minutes to be in there. And then you have it on signs. You know, yeah. Well, you can't stay here. You know, the limit is five minutes or ten minutes. But then uh, a person comes in like me, I got a thing in my wallet that right. you have to stamp. That shows that you're a customer, so it's ways in doing it. Yeah, no, I, and I don't disagree with that, John. No, thank, thanks for calling. I mean, there. Look, in, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have this problem. In, in a perfect world, you, you, you know, if if in a situation like you're talking about, you know, you're walking past the Starbucks, the bus driver, the bus driver's really got to go. You pull over, you you run in. It, it wouldn't be an issue. Now, I don't know that there's. And I think this is it. In, in a perfect world, you, you use a little bit of, of discretion. You know, you, you see the, the bus driver that's going to run in and use the bathroom real quick and run out. That's different than the the guy or the gal that's sitting there for six hours, you know, with the shopping cart full of stuff. In, and, and I'm not saying that the person with the shopping cart full of stuff doesn't have a place they need to go, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a private business. I think, John, you might actually be on to something that if this becomes, if there is a huge blowback, if there really are a lot of Starbucks patrons who are using the, the bathroom facilities, then, then you're right. You, you come up with like a loyalty card or something like that, and you can flash the loyalty card and they'll give you the key to the bathroom. But however they work this out, this was always one of these ideas that sounded really good on paper, but as a, you know, when you start to apply it to reality, just like we were talking about, you know, President, at the start of the show, President Biden with much fanfare announces on Thursday, hey, we're, we're going to, we're going to require states 
every 50 miles along the federal interstate highway to have the, these charging stations that are going to be there, and they're going to be free, and otherwise we're not giving the states you know, any money. And a lot of states say, well, Mr. President, don't you realize that you know, we don't even have exits that were within every 50 miles of each other, much less an electric grid that's in the middle of the Mojave Desert, you know, along some federal interstate. Sorry, it, it just, it, you can't do it. But, of course, nobody asks, you know, what do you mean we can't do it? You just kind of roll out these ideas. Well, Starbucks hasn't officially closed its doors, and I think they're probably seeing what the public reaction is. I think most people in the public realize that it is a private business, and you should have the right to at least control the traffic into your business to some extent. All right, we have been stirring the pot for a Monday afternoon. Uh, A couple things that happened since we last spoke. Friday afternoon the wisconsin's wisconsin elections commission which is a dysfunctional group you got three republicans three democrats made the decision that tim michaels the republican gubernatorial candidate would be allowed to stay on the ballot if you hadn't been following this this story the the michaels campaign made what i think would be fairly described as a technical error the way and this this is a peculiar apparently it's a peculiar aspect at least peculiar in my mind of of Wisconsin nominating papers if you live in a community but have a the community is one thing but the mailing address is different so for example with with Michaels he lives in the village of Shaniqua okay his Shaniqua I guess doesn't have its own post office so the mailing address is Heartland and so you could address a letter. If you wanted to send a piece of mail to Mr. Michaels, and you could put village, you got his address, you could put village of Shaniqua, or you could put Heartland, Wisconsin. It was just like I grew up in, in Glendale, and, um, you know, I would often put, I, I was, I didn't say Glendale, Wisconsin, I, I typically used Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then you'd put the 53217 zip code, and it didn't matter. I mean, the, the post office delivered it, whether you said Glendale, or whether you said Milwaukee. And in Michael's case, the post office delivers it, whether you said village of Shaniqua, or whether you said Heartland. Well, there's apparently this obscure part of Wisconsin law which says that if you have both, if your mailing address is different than your like street address, what you need to do on your nomination papers is you need to include both. And the Michaels campaign, the vast majority of the petitions, the nominating petitions that they printed up and circulated only had the Shaniqua address. It didn't also say Heartland. So this was this was the ultimate of, of technicalities, and I don't think there was any significant chance that he would have ever been bumped. And the Election Commission, which almost never agrees unanimously, agreed unanimously that, that he could stay on the ballot. This is one of the things I was talking about this with some people over the weekend. It, it is one where if I'm Tim Michaels, uh, there's some head that's rolling because it's like, come on, you know, we're we're spending millions and millions of dollars on, on this campaign, and now we've got this distraction that's out there because we're we made this technical error. Now, at the end of the day, he stays on the ballot. That's the right result. But it is, it's kind of like, okay, really? Don't you have somebody? Somebody's supposed to be looking at this to make sure, because th- there's so many focuses and aspects of Wisconsin election law that are, are very, you would say, nitpicky. And you would be correct if you say nitpicky. But, you know, they're, they're kind of the rules. And that's what you have election attorneys for and all. The other news on Friday was that um, Michael Gableman, his office, 
was found in contempt of court by a Dane County Circuit judge after Gableman refused to answer questions about his handling of public record requests. Here's my here, here is, and I, I repeat this. I, I know I infuriate some of you when I say this, but Mike Gableman needs to go away. This election, this election review needs to needs to go away. The the truth in Wisconsin is Joe Biden won the election. There were certain practices that certain election clerks engaged in that. I don't know if they were correct interpretations of law, but they weren't done fraudulently. We 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 all know this, and to continue to spend money on this, it, it's a sideshow. It's actually a sideshow of a sideshow. And the sooner Mike Gableman just declares victory, and you end the investigation, and we end these lawsuits, and we move on, and we start focusing on the things that most of us really care about, like the fact that gasoline is $5.20 a gallon and going through the roof, and that prices are up 8% over the last year, sooner we start focusing on those sort of issues, and the less we start relitigating 2020, I think the better we're going to be. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Look, I understand that there are some people, God bless you all, who listen to every three hours of the program every day. And, and I understand that. And, or who uh, we have a, we podcast the program, and I know there's lots and lots of podcast listeners and people who will listen to all three hours of the show, and I appreciate that. And I also recognize that there's people who, you know, listen to the snippets. You're in your car driving between appointments or you're in your car running errands or taking the kids, you know, picking the kids up or whatever. And, and so you listen in snippets. So there are some people that hear every part of the show every day. And there's other people who, you know, catch 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there. And and so we, we try to cater to all of them. So at the end of the last hour, I was just talking about how I think Michael Gableman needs to go away. And I got a, a handful of, of texts from people who are saying, no, 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 you, you have to understand. We What do you mean by go away? I mean, we're, we're all about fair elections. And so I will just real quickly, without trying to sound like a broken record, go review how I, I see the Wisconsin election situation. And actually, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Will, which is the conservative legal organization who's been responsible for a lot of a lot of good work over the last you know several years in, in reining in illegal type of, of behavior, a lot of which is done in the name of political correctness. They came out a report with a report about the Wisconsin elections about a year ago, and I, I think pretty much nailed it on the head. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. In Wisconsin, we did not have, uh, if, if you define voter fraud as being dead people voting, you know, made up ballots, voting machines where people voted for Trump and it turned out to be a vote. They, they cast a vote for Trump and it was recorded as a vote, vote for Biden. That did not happen. It, it just it just flat out didn't. There's no evidence at all to suggest it happened. What did happen is, is a couple things. First of all, you had all this money from this Mark, they call him Zuck Bucks, you know, from, from Mark Zuckerberg that was poured into the state. And it's money that went to election clerks in different areas to help them. It, it was private money that was designed to, quote unquote, help them 
turn out the vote, administer the elections, or whatever. It went disproportionately to some of the large urban areas where the voters were overwhelmingly Democratic. That, that's just the truth. So this money, whether it was intended or not, and people can disagree with that, but it, it went disproportionately to some of the larger urban areas. It helped juice the turnout which some people would say is a good thing, and that turnout that was juiced because it was disproportionately spent in some of these large areas, it tended to disproportionately benefit Joe Biden over Donald Trump. All right, that's that's not fraud. It's not illegal. I mean, the courts that have ruled on this have said pretty clearly it's not illegal. Now, you can make a strong argument that maybe it should be illegal, that we shouldn't have outside interest groups essentially funding statewide or, or local elections. But but that's something for the legislature and the governor to figure out. It happened. It wasn't illegal. And I don't think it violate. and I think it's pretty clear it didn't violate any laws, which means you, you either got to change the law or Republicans coming up in 2022, recognizing this is out there, if you think this practice disproportionately hurt you, well, then you need to figure out a way to fight fire with fire. And then ultimately, if you get a Republican legislation, a Republican governor, maybe you can change the laws to make sure it's illegal. But but it's it's not right now. And so I think that's pretty clear. The other thing that happened was you had elections officials in some primarily Democrat communities, Democrat-leaning communities, who interpreted state election law in such a way to, again, what I'm saying is juice the turnout. You know, here we're, we're going to have the democracy in the park thing. We're, we're going to have these drop boxes, et cetera, et cetera. That may be illegal, but there's no clear guidance. Wisconsin election law kind of unclear. The authorities, election clerks have to do this sort of stuff. Again, unclear, but it, it's not it's not fraud. And the way you clear this stuff up is, again, to either change the laws to make sure and make clear what's allowed and what's not, or you get the state Supreme Court to rule on these things. But again, that's not, to me, that that's not evidence of fraud per se. The fact that all right, you've got a law that is arguably ambiguous, and it's interpreted by the Milwaukee elections clerk in a way that's different than the Sheboygan elections clerk or whatever. That that doesn't mean it's fraud. It means somebody's probably right and somebody's wrong, but you need that cleared up. But again, it's it's not fraud. And that's what happened in the Wisconsin election. And, and Mike Gableman can spend... You know, another $500,000 of taxpayer money, and you're not going to come up with anything more than I just told you in the last six minutes. And that's the same thing that the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty came up with. You know, it, it's that that's what it is. And if you want election reform, well, what you need to do is you need to have – you're not going to get anything through the legislature as long as you have a governor who's on one side and Republicans on the other and or the, the Supreme Court that's been kind of all over the map when it comes to election reform. So that that's the answer to all this. And I guess my point is just rehashing the, the elections. And now we're, we're off. It, it really it's becoming a sideshow of a sideshow. Gableman gets held in contempt because he's refusing to answer questions. He's being sued under open records laws. It, it's we, we, we're moving so far afield from what the underlying fundamental question was that this whole thing is getting lost. Where and again, I repeat what I said at the end of the last hour. What we should be doing, 
regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, we should be focusing on the things that are really important right now, which are and are at issue, which are, you know, the the gas prices and inflation and crime and all these different sort of things, as opposed to trying to spin our wheels on the 2020 election where we're not going to get anywhere. We all know what happened. Everybody that's looked at it knows what's happened. And it's simply you had election clerks in Dane County and Milwaukee County in particular and city of Milwaukee in, specifically who, who decided to interpret election law in a certain fashion. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. But was it illegal? No, it was just those interpretations. And so what we need to do is we need to clear up what's what the law is and what it isn't. But spending hundreds of thousands of dollars more kind of chasing our tail and having contempt hearings on what records are open and things like that, it moves us away from what we really need to be doing, which is talking about the issues that are going to make a difference to people in 2022, including crime and public safety and uh, issues related to the economy. Just saying, okay, when we come back, is it woke or is it time? Stick around. Okay, if you watched ESPN over the course of the last several days, you probably found yourself watching women's softball because the NCAA um, women's softball tournament just was completed. Oklahoma ended up beating Texas. The women's softball tournament, just like the, the men's college baseball tournament, it's held in Omaha, Nebraska every year. I, I've been to the stadium, and it's this, it's this very, very impressive stadium. Matter of fact, one of my former producers, he was from Omaha. He used to go back there every year. It's, it's a big deal. I, I, I drove past the stadium last time I was in Omaha, which was a couple of years ago, and it, it's a big event. People come for the College World Series from, from all over. The same thing is true with the women's softball uh tournament the World softball world series it has been in oklahoma city uh, essentially since 1990 with the exception of one year where they played it um, in atlanta when the summer olympics were going on the facilities are are bar none um oklahoma city has invested a ton of money in in building multiple stadiums and it's a huge complex and it's got you know a couple of the stadiums have like second tiers on them and they've got multiple fields and and they've done it's really a huge marketing event for oklahoma city and it's a it is a big deal so oklahoma city rolls out the welcoming mat as far as i can tell you know everybody loves coming there it's a big deal and it's become established as okay this is where you go for the world series of of softball for women okay so you say jeff why are we talking about this Well, well here's the deal as we all know any day now, the United States Supreme Court is going to issue its, its ruling on whether or not Roe versus Wade remains the law of the land or not. And if you look at the leaked opinion that's out there, the Supreme Court is prepared to strike down Roe. Now, let us assume for the sake of argument that they end up doing that. That doesn't mean that abortions would automatically be um, illegal in this country. It means that the, each individual state would have the responsibility for drafting a, a statute that governed 
whether or not you could have an abortion and what limitations there might be on it. Would it be um, after 12 weeks? Would it be after 15 weeks? Would it be, you know, at all? You know, that those are the, those are the questions that are kind of out there. But it's a question that remains to be answered. Oklahoma, which is where they play the college World Series of softball, Oklahoma has one of the most stringent abortion statutes in the country. The governor of Oklahoma last month signed a bill which essentially would prohibit nearly all abortions starting at fertilization, and it would allow individuals to sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion. So if Roe is struck down, this Oklahoma law goes into effect, which essentially makes it almost impossible to get an abortion in Oklahoma. Okay, you can agree with that, you can disagree with that. But here's where the controversy is. Given Oklahoma's position on abortion, there are now a number of people, and I'm holding a big story in the New York Times from over the weekend, who are pressuring the NCAA to move its tournament. You Look, and the argument is, we cannot continue to go to the state of Oklahoma because they are all about restricting the rights of a woman to have an abortion. And this is absolutely unacceptable. And we are the NCAA, and we're supposed to be inclusive, and we're supposed to be recognizing all these policies. And this this is women. And here you have Oklahoma that is taking away a woman's right to choose, just like Major League Baseball made the decision to pull the All-Star game from Atlanta last year and send it to Denver because of the Major League Baseball's apparently apparent disagreement with some of the Georgia voting laws, which have turned out to be a tempest in a teapot, as many of us predicted. Now the argument is to the NCAA, you got to move out of Oklahoma because this is how they feel about abortion. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now to me, th- this is the danger of of institutions whether it's Disney or Major League Baseball or the NCAA deciding to take sides on political causes. But what do you think? If if Roe versus Wade is struck down, should you pull softball from Oklahoma because of Oklahoma's policy on abortion? Or is this one where, hey, it's a great venue, People love going there. It's a great facility. We make all sorts of money. It's already there. And sports, and in this case, the issue of abortion, should remain separate. All right. Should they pull Should they pull the college um, women's softball World Series from Oklahoma because of where Oklahoma stands on abortions? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, let's start this a text. Let's start thinking about this the other way. What if certain organizations wanted things to be pulled out of California because their laws are loose when it comes to homelessness and drug use and abortions and all this other stuff? Or they pulled out of Washington State because of their uh anti-police stands what if that would happen if things were opposite well see that's the that's the problem and it's like the the slippery slope that is in fact you know out there and i 
I, I, I agree with this. I, look, regardless of how you feel about the issue of abortion and what you think the laws should be, and that's a very, very difficult issue, and your where you come down on that's going to depend on your personal experiences and your religious beliefs and, and all a myriad of other things. It's it's always going to be a divisive issue in America. In America, it's been a divisive issue before Roe versus Wade. It's been a divisive issue since Roe versus Wade. If Roe is struck down, and we now have different states that are going to have different laws, trust me, it's going to be a divisive issue on that. And from the perspective of the NCAA, I just I think that these businesses, and that's what the NCAA is, that decide to pick winners or losers, or decide that they are they are going to get on a particular side of an issue. It's it's just a recipe for disaster. You saw that with Major League Baseball, where they decided, hey, we're going to be woke. We don't like this new Georgia voting law, even though the Georgia voting law is a lot less restrictive than the laws, for example, in, in New York or in Delaware, where Joe Biden's from. But we want to be hip and trendy. We want to jump on this bandwagon. And all we end up doing is alienating a bunch of fans and messing over a majority minority city like Atlanta to, to go to, to Denver. It was just, it's a problem when industries, businesses, and again, we're calling the NCAA a business, decide that they're going to pick sides in these issues. So if I'm the NCAA, I just stay away from this entire issue. Okay, we, we've had it in Oklahoma City. We've got this facility. We have a contract to keep this games in Oklahoma City, I think for like the next 15 years is what it is. And if, if you don't want to come to Oklahoma City because personally you don't like the way Oklahoma feels about abortions, okay, that that's fine. Then, then don't play, and we'll invite another team to play. But to me, that's how you handle it, as opposed to these organizations trying to pick winners and losers and decide what side of an issue they want to be on. Because here's the truth of it. You know, those organizations never know ultimately what the right side of that issue is, is going to be. And sometimes when you give in to sort of knee-jerk reactions, you end up making mistakes. Uh, it, it really is brutal. There's no other way to describe it. On Friday, the, the stock market once again you know, cratered. And I think a lot of people thought, well, it's got to like even out at some point in time. Well, no. Today, the Dow down 851 points, which is 2.7 percent. Uh, the Nasdaq, which is tech heavy, down 511, and that that's down 4.5 percent. When just for frame of reference, when Joe Biden was inaugurated, and it went up after that, but the Nasdaq was around 13.4. It's now 10-8, so it's lost about 30% of its value during the, the time Joe Biden's been president. It's actually more than that because it, it went up. The Dow, when Biden was inaugurated, was 31-8, so now the Dow is 30,500, so that's that's down a, as well. And I understand there's people who say, well, it, it's it's only a problem because if, if you start taking money out. Well, that's not really true. I mean, I guess, y- yes, it's only a paper loss. But at the same time, for financial planners, you know, when, when they sit down, if you go into a financial planner today and you say, okay, this is this is what my nest egg is, and they'll project out and they'll say, okay, well, under these different scenarios, starting with how big your nest egg is today, this is how much money you can, this is when you can afford to retire, et cetera, et cetera, and how much money you'll have. Well, okay, a lot of people's nest egg, you know, what what was the number we were throwing around on Friday? I sent out a tweet on it, like half a trillion dollars in investor worth just disappeared 
over the first quarter of this year. And I, I understand for people who have a long time horizon, it's not necessarily as big a deal because you figure the stock market will, will come back at, at some point in time. But for people who are in retirement or close to retirement, th- this is a huge problem. And I think one of the things that's fair is that this so much of the stuff we're dealing with now was was in fact predictable and it's one of the reasons why people say oh you're beating up on joe biden well yeah because at least in my opinion pretty much everything biden has done with regard to the economy since he took over has has been wrong some of the stuff beyond your control putin invades ukraine now whether putin would have done that if trump was the president or not we, we don't know but putin invades ukraine yes i understand that creates you know pressure on energy and things like that but whether it's a war on domestic energy producers because you want to go off on the green agenda or a, a 1.9 trillion dollar spending uh, spree that did nothing now everybody acknowledges point that many of us were trying to make at the time that this just fueled this huge inflationary um, run-up that we had and i could go on and on but you get the idea but the bottom line and now the now dow's down 934 points today it's just it's yet another brutal day in the market and it's tough psychologically on people but it's tough in the real world as well especially for folks who are on fixed incomes who are in retirement who were planning to retire at a certain time and the worst part is Nobody has a good idea as to where the bottom is, other than the fact that we're now pretty much in what they call bear market uh, territory, which is defined as being down 20% from a high. How bad this will go and when it'll come back, nobody knows. All right, but I don't want to just talk about the stock market from being low. Uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is out with a, a report. They do this from time to time. It's called Apples to Apples, and what they do is they, they compare – test results and and again these are test results for for kids uh, and they use that to draw certain conclusions now the the new apples to apples numbers are out and what it finds looking at the test results of kids who take the test these tests first of all is that kids who are in private or charter schools do slightly better than the kids who are in public schools i don't find that hard to believe because I think partly it's parental involvement. And if the parent, and this isn't saying all public schools are awful, but you know, if you've got a parent that's gone to the trouble to do this research and pull you out of the public schools and put you in a choice school or a private school, that tells me that you've got a parent who's definitely plugged into your education, therefore giving you more uh, likelihood to succeed. But here's the dazzling detail from this particular study. What they did year to year is they looked at at proficiency of of kids you know taking the tests and and comparing these different tests and what they found was that in the areas of math and english which i think you could argue if you're going to be successful you know math and english are two really really big deals what they found is that a less than 40 percent Less than four out of ten of the kids who took the, these particular tests were proficient in math and English. In other words, 60% weren't proficient in English or, or math. 
Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't, I, I want to try to get past the, this conversation about, you know, public schools versus charter schools or, or whatever, and kind of just talk about the notion of, of schools and this recognition that almost by any objective standard, we are failing when it comes to public education. And by the way, before you call up and say, well, we, we just need more money, one of the other things this, this study did is, is they looked and they compared and adjusted for the school districts that had more money than the ones that had less. And what they found is that there's almost no um, causation. There's really no connection between money and, and proficiency. It, it just, it, it's almost non-existent. So th- this idea that just throwing more money at a situation is going to make more kids proficient, it just isn't the case. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Why is it that you, why do you think it is that we've only got four out of ten kids who are taking these tests who are proficient. And even if you say, well, okay, maybe these tests don't properly pick up this or that or the other thing, and, and maybe there's more kids who can actually read or write or, or do math than proficiently than's reflected here, I'll give you an extra 10%. Let's say, let's say that's 50%. That means one out of every two kids isn't proficient in English and math. What's going on? 855-616-1620. I've got some theories. What are yours? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Oh, very good. That is one of, Charlie, that's one of my very favorite Steely Dan songs. Never going back to my old school. No, no, William and Mary won't do. All right, the new study out by Will, that's Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, it's called Apples to Apples, and one of the many conclusions it has is that 40%, and this, this statewide test, there's only about 40% statewide, if you can get into different areas, the numbers get worse, uh, of kids who are proficient in reading or, or writing. And I'm, I'm asking this, this why question. Now, one of our listeners, you know, Taylor, says, look, Jeff, it's not a money thing. And matter of fact, the, their study suggests that, too, that you can that you, you look at the money that's spent per pupil in different districts and there's it, it has nothing to do. There appears to be like no correlation, no causation with the deficient reading scores. Students who are this is what our listener says. Students who are proficient have parents or a parent who reads with them or to them or with them and assists them with their homework and gets them extra help. I, I actually agree. I think that is a starting point, that it's, it is it is the parental involvement. I mean, I just, I remember just growing up, I mean, my I remember flashcards, you know, the multiplication cards that they used to hold up, you know, six times five. I can remember sitting at a kitchen table and my father or my mother, you know, doing these flashcards with me and, and you'd learn these basic things I, and, and checking to make sure the homework was done and stuff like that. I, I do think that parental involvement and recognizing that there is a value to an education is just so very, very important. And I think that's why in some communities, what you see is that education is much more valued than in other communities that are out there. Let's talk to Dave. Dave in Caledonia, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Dave. Uh, I'm going to go one further. Uh, The problem is not the schools. The problem is not the teachers. The problem is not the money. The problem is individual students' desire to learn. 
these there are individual students out there and uh, you know because it's a one-on-one thing either this person is willing to learn or they are not willing to learn mm-hmm. there's an age-old uh, uh saying you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink and uh, until yeah. the culture makes it where these individuals feel like it's of a benefit to them and they develop a desire to learn then they will if they don't right and, and i think that don't would you agree with me that that starts at home where where it's like okay this is you're going you're not going to cut class and you're you're going to get away from playing the video games and you're not going to be out on the street at 2:30 in the morning looking to steal cars when you're 13 years old you know you're you're going to be at bed at a regular time and you're going to do your homework and and we're not going to tolerate this sort of stuff I, that to me is kind of the the key it starts at home to motivate the kids that they they have to learn Yes, and I agree with that. Uh, and the thing is, but like I said, it's a it's a cultural mentality. Yeah. It's what uh, these individuals are prioritizing in their own behavior as what they think is desirable. Yeah, do, right. Do you value right? Um, no, thanks for calling. No, I get it. Do Do you value uh, Do you value education? And that's and and like I say, that's one of the. When, when they when they're adjusting for private versus you know, like I'm by private I'm talking about like the choice in the charter schools and things like that versus the public schools the the kids who are in the private slash choice schools do slightly better slightly better than than the public schools but to me that's a reflection of it, of it's the parents because if if you're going to go to the trouble of of researching and finding that a choice school or the private school to have your kid go to that tells me you're probably a little bit more plugged in and i'm generalizing now i understand that than a lot of it but it's i mean look i I understand, like, you've got the, the teachers' unions and stuff, and unfortunately, in many respects, it's about, well, give us more money, give us more money, give us more money. That That's not, that is not the key. And I'm also sympathetic to public school teachers who, in many respects, and I know several of them, who, who say in certain respects, they feel like they're glorified babysitters. And you're, you're not getting the support at, at home from the, the parents. And you, you know, the, the parents aren't making the kids do the homework. You, the, the parents are completely punched out. And maybe it's because the parents didn't value education at all. But I'm here to tell you, you know, this is one where, it really, to me, it's not about throwing money at a problem. It's figuring out what we do to change the, uh, to use you know Dave's word, culture, the cultural matrix, which I don't know, convinces people that if you're really going to succeed in this world, Bill Gates notwithstanding, you know that those occasional geniuses notwithstanding, you you need to be able to have basic skills and you need to learn and you need to be in school and you need to learn how to read and you need to learn you know how to write and you need to learn how to do basic math and, and until we get that cultural change we're, we're going to be in trouble and this new number is just reinforce that i wish we had more time to have this discussion we will re- revisit in the next day or two